Hey there, before we get started, just want to let you know today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members. Breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com Which mistake would the Fed prefer to make? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, April 21st, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by one of our favorite guests, Harry Melandri, advisor for MI2 Partners. Harry, welcome back, man. Always a pleasure to be with you. It's it's great to be here. I'm shocked I'm one of your favorite guests, but um, I'll, I'll take that. I'll definitely take that. Well, you've earned it. Listen, uh, the second half of the show today is just for Real Vision members, we should say. So if you don't want to miss it, you can sign up by using the link in the description or scan the QR code on the screen. Let's jump right into what's happening today. Harry, you know, we've been talking about this a lot at Real Vision. It feels like kind of a a weird moment in markets, in macro. Uh, We alluded to it at the very top of the show with that question, which mistake would the Fed prefer to make? It does have this feeling like we're we're sort of perched between the Scylla and Charybdis here uh, of rising inflation or inflation that still can't be contained, maybe better said, uh, and some of the risks that we're seeing in the banking sector, some of the retreat we're seeing in home prices, just a lot of stuff happening. Big picture, where are we? How do we frame it? How do we contextualize it for the viewers? So uh, uh, MI2, the way we're looking at it is, first of all, we have a uh, an, a, an, a rather bearish analysis of the real economy. Um, for us, what we see is a classic inventory cycle that looks like it's running into a credit crunch and a construction cycle at the same time. Um, I hesitate to use the word perfect storm because it's a bit of a cliche, but it doesn't. This doesn't look like it's going to be fun. Harry, let's let, let's break all of that down. Uh, for our audience, many of whom are not familiar with thinking about inventory cycles per se as a way of understanding market dynamics. What does that mean first? What is an inventory cycle and where are we in it? And finally, why is it so important to understanding the overall picture of where we are from a macro perspective and its influence on markets? So, you know, you're you're asking me something so basic, it's hard to be sure my definition will will meet the, you know, minimum requirement. But uh, oscillations in the underlying level of activity in the economy can be amplified. And one of the obvious channels for that is the inventory channel. If you order a little bit too much inventory and if everyone does it all the way along the along the supply chain, uh, pretty soon we have way too much of everything. And uh, soon after that, the economy slows down because people cut production. So I, I gave you some slides and it's probably a good time to take a look at one of those slides. Um, we We have quite a few uh, charts we could pull up, but this seemed like the best one to illustrate why MI2 uh, thinks we're about to hit an inventory cycle. And it's uh, a chart of the ISM customer inventories versus the ISM manufacturing headline number. And right, so th- this is Institute of Supply uh, Management that does these studies uh, that give us a sense of what's happening in the economy. Boy, that's an unusual chart. Wow. So the red 
red um, circles show you where the customer inventories flip above the manufacturing headline number. And the intuition is if you've stuffed your supply channels partly by oversupply and partly by a lower than anticipated demand, um, you tend to have to cut production soon afterwards. So either way, these circles tend to follow, tend to signal uh, the start of an inventory cycle and a big cutback in manufacturing output. I can't quite read the x-axis, but it looks like a pretty su sufficient time frame in the in years. I think it's probably about uh, about twenty year time horizon. And what's interesting to me is that we see the largest gap uh, between those two indicators we see on this chart that's pretty striking yeah I, you know i think a lot of that is just the scale of some of these enormous moves we've had but um yeah you know i would hate to lean on any one indicator too hard but if th this one is showing that it looks like um the under underlying growth is slowing and you know that's happening against an unfortunate backdrop. So as I said, it's not the only thing which points to a slowing economy. We also have a credit cycle. And I think with the credit cycle issue, um, I, I don't think anyone could have missed it. Like banks falling over tends, everyone tends to spot it when banks fall over. And it really isn't a, a great sign. There's um, an economist at BU uh, called Paul Schmelzing, and we've used his work in the past. We we love his stuff. He's responsible for things like um, 800 years worth of uh, of data uh, and VAR. I think one of his uh, pieces was VAR, Volcker, and um, and bond bond market reversals. <laughs> uh, well, so no, it's Venetians VAR and Volcker because he he's using 800 years worth of data. So he recently did an analysis where they, they did a taxonomy, if you will, um, uh, coding uh, the financial shocks over the last couple of centuries, I think. And when you, this policy mix we've just had, uh, where you see uh, substantial injection of reserves and deposit guarantees, um, that tends to be associated with something that subsequently is uh, is recognized as a systemic banking event. So, you know, it's it's definitely what we're seeing walks like a duck and it's quacking like a duck. Um, and I think a lot of people are aware that the, the Fed, all it managed to really do was uh, provide huge amounts of liquidity to banks that were struggling a bit with getting liquidity after they'd ex they'd lost a lot of money on duration, among other positions. The liquidity they supply, furnish, doesn't eliminate the problem. Um, it means they, that we don't have, uh, they're not going to uh, suddenly collapse because of deposits. We've already had quite a few banks that did that, that just collapsed because they ran out of deposits. Um, but it does mean that we have a capital impaired weaker regional banks at the moment in the US. Now, so the analogy is that the Fed resuscitated the patient but didn't cure the disease. Sorry, Ash. No, I was just going to ask you to talk a little bit and expand upon where we are right now in the credit cycle. Obviously, lots of folks have been following the news cycle very closely. Uh, obviously, we see what happened uh, with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, we've seen some of these tremors happen throughout the system. There's been a lot of talk about a credit contraction, about some of the impact into firms not being able to get the credit that they may want or need. 
Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the news cycle so people can contextualize this 800-year cycle in the context of what they're reading every day when they pick up the Wall Street Journal, because it is just an unremitting uh, sort of stream of uh, trepidation and doubt about what's going to happen in the future of credit. So you can tell that there is, uh, uh, that we're restricted in the amount of credit available. And that's that's not really uh, a Eurobond issue. If you look at Fortune 500 country companies, um, there's you know, trivially small widenings in spread product in the in corporate bonds. There's almost nothing there. Um, mortgage bonds are a little weaker, but where you see real problems is in CMBS. Uh, CMBS is showing all sorts of uh, signs of weakness um, and limited demand, but also in in you know what's generally referred to as a shadow banking sectors. Can we defi- um, can we define that and talk a little bit about what commercial mortgage backed securities are and what their significance is in the system for folks who may not know? Sure. So uh, when we originate uh, uh, debt secured by commercial real estate, that debt can be pooled, um, and it tends to go into bond pools called CMBS, and the CMBS. Uh, pools, uh, they may have a huge number of different bonds in them from from uh, often specialized by sector. So you might see things like, uh, what do you call them, malls uh, in retail. You might see office CMBS. You, you'll get a, it's a huge amount of paper written on this. And this paper has been distributed uh, into insurance companies, it's in the banking sector, it's in pension funds, it's everywhere. Um, sensible real estate investors don't like to leave too much equity in their deal. So as real estate values rallied and as yields came down, people kept on refinancing their deals and issuing more paper and extracting the equity from the deal. We're now in a place where a lot of that paper, um, because yields, uh, because uh, rates have gone up, we have to, we, we question the underlying value of these things. Um, and we question those collateral values partly because um, cap rates are now upside down with regard to uh, uh, funding rates, but also because we've had, sorry. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com. No, I, I was just going to say we should we should say that cap rates are an important uh, component of understanding real estate investment. This is capitalization rate. It's very often the way that real estate investors price property and get a sense of how cheap or expensive it is. Yeah, I'm I'm bound to misspeak because it's not really my home pitch. But um, the right way to think about cap rates is you've got a net operating income on your piece of real estate. And if you divide that by the purchase price, you get a cap rate. So how much does your piece of real estate yield after costs? And 
Uh, as I said, the, the odds of me misdefining that slightly are, are very high. No, that was perfect. How much does it yield in terms of uh, cost? And, and then the reverse, how much does it cost in terms of yield? You can think of them as sort of- Exactly. So, all, so this way we get to cross-compare cash flows. And um, what we can do here is now take a look. If you've got a positive spread on the cap rate relative to your funding costs, there's a chance, and it is only a chance, by the way, that your uh, piece of real estate will positively carry, that you'll you'll make money after you finance it. Um, now, you've got probably, you haven't considered all of your costs in that, but if you were, you know, a positively financing piece of real estate will give you net, net uh, cash flow after you pay off your 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 debt service. Now, apart from refinancing the loan, now uh, what's been going on? Well, uh, we we built a lot of real estate. Uh, we have a fair amount of real estate which is not, you know, no longer meeting the needs of uh, business. So, real estate which maybe doesn't have class A. Uh, air conditioning units, class A heating, class A wiring for electric, for data, um, ceiling heights, all sorts of things. We have legacy offices, which are just not as popular. Uh, businesses want top quality space. And there's a fair amount of top quality space now that we fired so many people from the tech sector. So what does that mean? That means that rent's sliding. And um, as rents slide and vacancy rates increase, we get into this kind of vicious circle where uh, it becomes hard to refinance real estate. Now, I don't want to spend too long on this because this is a, there's a lot to be said and there are specialists in the field. But, but let's just say that banks own a fair amount of, of real estate-related debt. Insurance companies own a fair amount of real estate-related debt. And municipalities are exposed to tax streams from real estate-related assets. Um, so all of those groups might be a little worried about the returns on their assets. Yeah, and obviously it, it's uh, worth mentioning that the position that we're in with commercial real estate right now, in addition to the cyclical factors that you're talking about here, which is this constant rolling, uh, you know, between uh, these different points in the cycle, we also have these secular factors, one-time factors, uh, significant disruptions to the economy in terms of what's happened here with the COVID epidemic and the fact that, uh, you know, I don't know about most people out there listening, but I don't go into an office anymore. And there are lots of folks who are like me. Uh, when you see that decrease in demand uh, and the supply remains constant, obviously uh, these buildings are durable assets. Uh, they don't go away when you have a real estate uh, cycle when you have a change to the economy. So what you have is prices declining as a consequence of this sort of one-time secular event uh, that has had an enormous impact on the global economy here in the United States and abroad. Exactly. And I, I'm not talking to you from an office either. It might look like I am, but that's that's a pretty unconvincing backdrop. So um, you did a great is, job with your home office, Harry. Thank, thank you. Thank That's you. Very impressive. Um, yeah, I've got to hide the the foosball table. It's it's uh, it's it's apparently not not something you're meant to have, but uh, it's really popular. With Let me people. ask you this: Is that is that Midtown East? Is that the city building? Yeah, I think it. Yeah, East? absolutely. I think we're looking out over Queens with with that, with that backdrop. Well, what's so, really strange is we're facing the opposite direction, right? Because I'm looking at you toward New Jersey, and Queens is behind me here on the Upper East Side. So right, it's like right. everything's flipped. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we can see that regional banks have a problem brewing. 
Um, and that's worse when we think about the deposit situation. Um, I read earlier today that a, a $4.7 trillion worth of non-interest-bearing deposits had been modeled as having a seven-year duration. Um, well, let's put it this way. You have a large deposit in a regional bank. What's your upside to keep it there? Um, not very much. What's your downside? Well, if it's not federally deposit guaranteed, your downside is the entire deposit. So naturally, we've seen deposits bleed out of the banking system. And I would argue there's nothing. Uh, there's, people are not stupid enough to leave money in unguaranteed bank accounts, having seen what they saw with S SVB Bank, Signature Bank, and so forth. Um, so that bleed, it's just inconceivable to me that it will not continue. Um, unless the government, unless the authorities choose to uh, guarantee every bank account, which there are really good reasons why they don't want to do that. It's effectively a form of uh, socialization of, of uh, banking system. And we need a banking system, which is a private sector entity. We don't want a socialized banking system. Harry, so, is the perception that large money center banks uh, here in uh, the United States, uh, the Wells Fargo's, JPM's, uh, Bank of America's of the world are essentially implicitly guaranteed? Well, that is the perception and that has been the reality. And we, the, the authorities refer to them as systemically important banks. So what you don't want is that the people who had their deposits in uh, SVB Bank were very lucky that that bank was considered systemically important. And we should perhaps ask a few more questions about how that determination happened. And the bank itself had lobbied very aggressively to be considered not systemically important, which is a burden. So it, it's a, there's a, a whole series of things one might ask quite pointed questions about. But right now, we're focused on this issue about whether or not the, the credit disaster that we almost had is over. And I would argue it's inconceivable to me that it is over, uh, simply because you can't unsee a series of bank failures. Right. Um, and if you know that you have an unlimited downside on a risk, um, with very limited upside, why would you take that? And what's worse is now think about it. Um, imagine that you're a regional bank and you had assumed you had a block of, of non-interest paying uh, deposits that you could use and lean on for your funding and kept that kept your funding costs low. Well, your funding costs have just gone up massively. Um, so you've got a sustainability problem. Um, you've got a problem in sustaining your business model. Uh, you've got a problem in sustaining your profitability. And there are really good reasons why you'll be in defense mode going forward. Um, and not just you, I would suggest everything in the shadow banking sector is also in defense mode. People having seen this kind of event will be quite cautious in, in, in right. ro rolling over uh, existing risks. Harry, it's so interesting that you should make that point uh, because it's precisely what Andreas Steno Larson was talking about in his most recent Steno's signals, the big discrepancy between East and West aired yesterday on Real Vision at four, on 420. I want to take a look at this clip because it really makes precisely the same point that you're making right now. Let's take a look at it. So what we saw in March and April uh, was this uptick in emergency lending uh, from banks at the Federal Reserve. Uh, so the lender of last resort stepped in with emergency liquidity when it was needed. Uh, and typically what we see after a short while is that banks 
faced with liquidity issues and deposit flights tend to take very conservative decisions on uh, their credit policies. Um, and we have gathered evidence also of the past couple of weeks of very conservative decision-making um, among large banks in the US, both for um, consumer credit, uh, auto credit, uh, and uh, home credit. So I think the evidence is slowly but surely building now that um, the credit contraction will eventually uh, unfold in the US uh, after a time lag, since the credit decisions are now very conservative in um, in banks. Also, small and medium-sized uh, companies, they tell us now in surveys that the availability of loans is less good than it was just a month or two ago. Uh, so that is ultimately what happens once liquidity stress hits financial markets. Um, and therefore, when we look a bit ahead, um, I think the banking uh, sentiment and the banking crisis is, is likely to worsen. Okay, so obviously uh, some bearish views from Andreas Stenos Larsen uh, talking about this challenge uh, where you essentially have these uh, this risk, a heightened risk of credit contraction going forward after they have access to emergency liquidity. It's an interesting concept. Harry, what did you think about it? How does it jive with your view or not? So I totally agree with Andreas in this case. Um, I think that the Fed supplied all the liquidity the regional banks might need. Uh, the big, big banks didn't need it because they are systemically important. Everyone understands that they won't be allowed to fail. The, the scenario is unacceptable. Um, but the regional banks are now looking at closer regulation. They're looking at more expensive capital, um, more expensive deposits. If rates stay where they are, they will slowly realize the capital losses that they would show if they marked their duration positions to market. So we will need rates to come down for all the regional banks, well, not all but a fair number of regional banks will be questionable. Um, and the market will go on a seek and destroy mission for weaker banks. Um, hence the incentive to stop lending and shore up capital positions. You guys have come across the joke about bears, haven't you? You know, the, the being chased by a bear? I know precisely the joke. So two guys uh, come across a bear in the, in the woods and one guy drops to his knees and starts praying and the other guy starts lacing up his, book, his boots. And the gentleman who drops to his knees and praying saying, oh, for goodness sakes, you don't really think you can outrun a bear. And his friend says, oh, no, I don't think I can outrun a bear at all. However, I think I can outrun you. <laughs> and this is the logic of the situation we find ourselves in now with the banking system. Um, weaker banks uh, will be in trouble. So if you can put yourself to be in a stronger position than other regional banks, uh, by maybe cutting your lending or maybe shifting your portfolio around to have better shorter duration bonds, more liquidity, then you can outrun, you can't outrun the market, but you can outrun the weaker banks until the Fed changes its mind. And I think that guarantees that the, the weakness in the regional banks will remain. And what that really means is we have a situation where there's not really a good reason to lend, to do CRE lending, commercial real estate lending. It's not really a great reason to do uh, residential lending either, except for the fact that a lot of residential lending comes from federal agencies. Um, but that lending is slower. You have to dot I's and cross T's, and it, 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 you don't transact huge portfolios. You don't certainly don't transact shopping malls, generally speaking. You're, you're talking about the GSEs here, yeah, Fannie and Freddie? Yes, exactly. 
So agency, the agencies will continue to lend. So for conforming mortgages, we'll see that business continue. Um, it, it'll slow down overall, though. And generally speaking now, we're going to reward banks that don't lend. Um, and that that's a problem. We're going to see less uh, real estate uh, investment. Uh, and so GDP growth will weaken. Harry, what does this portend uh, more broadly for equity markets, for fixed income as we look uh, obviously, this uh, sense of trying to search for direction, kind of a stagnant period right now in the S&P. Uh, how do you feel this carries over to equities? So there's a, there's a really good question here, which, uh, which is uh, we've, we've got quite a bearish view. Um, we can see that uh, we're, we're in a, a bearish uh, situation for the construction, for cyclical construction. We have an inventory cycle, which is bearish. Um, so why why are equities so damn strong? Um, and I can posit some arguments. I can't prove it, but one of the arguments I'd make uh, isn't really made by me. It's made by you know, a guy called Warren Mosler. He would point out to you that that uh, fiscal policy is more stimulative than it looks because higher rates with high debt to GDP levels. Uh, are producing an awful lot of interest income for people who are now invested in government bonds or uh, deposits or whatever, guaranteed deposits. So the amount of interest income, that we, it's, it's a very backward-looking number that's produced on the FRED series, but this thing is it looks like an exponential chart. Uh, we're seeing something like 865 billion annual rate of interest expense in the federal budget. That's a stimulative, a, stim, a flow in the flow of funds analysis. It's a kind of stimulus. Now, the, the counter argument to that is it's hardly a progressive stimulus. So you're you're basically putting huge amounts of money into uh, wealthier. Uh, 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 into, into the portfolios of people right. who would normally spend on assets. They don't consume that money. So it's, right, it's right. A relative- this is important, an important point here. I just want to double click on it because I think it's so important. Now, obviously, uh, from one perspective, people will talk about uh, the uh, economic inequality issue, which is certainly uh, the case. But uh, macroeconomists will look at this and say exactly what you just did, uh, which is the difference between mar- marginal comp- propensity uh, to save versus marginal propensity to consume. Uh, when a, f- a large portion of return goes into the hands of those who consume very little of their next marginal dollar earned, in other words, the next dollar they earn, uh, what winds up happening is you don't have the kind of stimulative effect to growth. Whereas if you put it in the hands of working people, uh, working people have uh, unsatisfied needs. You, they get a little bit more money. They want to go out and spend it. They want to buy a bigger house, maybe start a small business, all of these kinds of things. When it's going to people who are essentially uh, making money, they, uh, I guess the old fashioned word is the rentier class, uh, making money on, on rents and uh, and basically clipping coupons from bonds, uh, what winds up happening is it goes back into assets and you have this pro-cyclical effect where you get uh, even more asset price inflation as a consequence of that earning. And it turns out uh, to be uh, kind of a positive feedback loop that can be very negative for the economy. Well, thank God you completely get what I was saying because I was falling over my own words, but that's exactly what I was trying to get across. Um, And, you know, there's another effect right here, right now, which has also been stimulative, and I think it's just about to stop, but I could be wrong in that assessment, Um, and that is the debt ceiling. Um, If you think about it, the debt ceiling 
represents a restriction on federal borrowing, but it doesn't necessarily represent a restriction on federal spending. Um, the UST, US Treasury, can go down the back of its sofa and find whatever cash it can find from all sorts of places, including, say, the Civil Service Pension Fund or uh, the Social Security Trust Fund, and it will borrow money from those places with, without actually hitting up investors for that cash. So you, you, you're getting additional spending, but without the uh, additional bond market issuance. Um, and that's got to be net stimulative for asset markets. Effectively, um, this is unfunded spending going on right now. And, you know, that situation will reverse. Um, it will reverse when we get a resolution of the debt ceiling. And when we get that resolution, uh, US Treasury and, and Janet Yellen will be back in those bond markets issuing all sorts of paper incredibly aggressively. So making up for lost time, I should say. So uh, right here, we've had quite a big stimulus to markets. Uh, you could argue it stimulated bond markets more than equity, but in practice, the markets are weighing mechanism and, you know, these are deep pools. Um, I can see that at the margin, there's a little bit more money um, that can flow into equity markets because of this. And maybe that explains why equities have been so strong. Hmm. Harry, I've got a question actually about equities. By the way, I should say, we're going to do a lot more questions after the jump uh, when we go for Real Vision members, the second half of the show, the back nine, so to speak, the last 30 minutes of the show. But I wanted to give a couple of questions out here to some of the folks that are on YouTube because they're asking really good ones, Harry. Uh, here's one that comes from a uh, YouTube 8848. And it's a very simple, very crisp question. Only, uh, only three words, I guess one of them is hyphenated. And the question is this, is tech overvalued? Uh, I think, you know, you've got to really look um, at each individual company and do an analysis uh, based on that. Now, what do I think? I, you know, I look at something like uh, NVIDIA and it's really hard for me to not think that NVIDIA is overvalued because I'm an old fart. And when I see 20 times revenue, a company trading on 20 times sales, um, I remind, I'm reminded of Cisco. Um, do you remember the speech? that the CEO of Cisco gave um, before the dot-com bust in like 2000, and, about 2000, I think he gave a speech. This, he was was John, this was John Chambers, the then. Yeah. And he basically said, there is no way on earth, if you are expecting us to make a return on uh, 20 times our uh, sales, um, you are nuts. There's no possible way that this company can ge can generate that kind of a, a return on that. Um, and sure enough, um, the the stock collapsed. Um, even though the company itself is is just fine, the yeah. valuation of the company, the valuation of the company was way too rich. And I've, by the way, I've got the chart in front of me right now. I don't think we sure. can run it uh, this quick, but I I just wanted I just want to describe for people what we're looking at here. It peaks uh, in April of 2000, which was the sort of the epicenter. Uh, of the valuations bubble on the dot-com bubble uh, at, uh, it looks like about 80 bucks a share. Give you some idea, a little context right now. Great company done great things. Obviously uh, has a huge presence uh, in the router space right now, trading at $47 uh, some 23 years later. So that gives you a sense of just how overvalued this company was. 
valuations can be very high. And then we have things like Google. Um, so I'm not an equity analyst. In fact, I'm a terrible equity investor. I don't, don't listen to me on equities. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but I look at Google and I think to myself um, that Google has some excellent businesses, but those businesses are potentially threatened by new innovations. I read a headline today about ChatGPS and the fact that it's, it can revolu potentially revolutionize search. Um, very richly valued companies um, trading on very high multiples in a market where everyone knows these companies don't need finance. They have a huge advantage over companies that do need finance. Um, they can get over, they can get too expensive. It's possible. Well, let me just say, just a quick shameless plug. If you're interested in learning more about ChatGPT, uh, I did a conversation on the Real Vision platform uh, with an AI developer, former Google engineer, former Microsoft engineer uh, named Mikhail Volishin. Right now, it's live on the Real Vision platform. We actually walk through, Harry, you got to take a look at this video because it's just incredible. We actually walk through uh, a demo of ChatGPT uh, where Mikhail is uh, telling it, hey, produce some marketing copy. Hey, produce some code. I want to fly a spaceship to Mars, show me what it would look like if you were to write Python code that would calculate the orbit and it just spits out code. I mean, you see this technology, it's just extraordinary. And boy, from a macroeconomic perspective, there's going to be some wild stuff that's going to come in terms of labor saving as a result of this technology. I mean, everybody who looks at this, uh, who's serious about it, has just seen this incredibly striking opportunity. Uh, I should say, we're going to have a lot more opportunity to continue this conversation. Uh, Harry, any final thoughts you'd like to give before we switch over uh, to the next half of this show? Um, I would, the thing I would emphasize right here, right now, is uh, the Bear Stearns hedge funds back in 2000, July 2007. In July 2007, we had a, a credit event take place. Bear Stearns had two mortgage-backed security hedge funds fail. Um, however, um, the failure of the Bear Stearns hedge funds did not mark an immediate collapse. The market bled out below the surface for a long time before people recognized that, in fact, it was going to be really, really hard to refinance uh, mortgage-backed securities and position and, and, re and distribute these securities. Um, so you can have a credit event below the surface, even while everything looks fine. Yeah, you sure can. That event uh, happened in July, I believe, of 2007. And the, the ultimate Lehman bankruptcy, the, the sort of the nadir of that moment was September 15th of 2008. So there you have it, about uh, 14 months in between those two events, a pretty striking way to end this half hour. Uh, so that wraps it up for this half hour on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're, of course, going to continue this conversation on the Real Vision platform. Listen, if you're not a member, click the link in the description or scan the QR code on the screen and join this incredible community, especially if you want to continue this conversation, a great conversation with Harry Melandry. With that, let's turn it over to the back half of the other side of the platform. Uh, we'll see you soon. If you are leaving us on YouTube uh, and if you're joining us, the conversation very much continues. Thanks for joining us today. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks.
GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action, goldinvestmentletter.com.